We are beginning a new series this week, and the series is a question, and the question is, where is Jesus taking you? Where is Jesus taking you? He is taking you somewhere if you're following him. And we will see that play out in the book of Luke over the next several weeks. He's taking his disciples to a certain place. And I want us to begin in Luke chapter 17 and verse 11. So if you have a copy of God's word, Luke chapter 17 and verse 11, if you picked up one of the Bibles in the back, it'll be page 604. We're going to read exactly where Jesus is taking his disciples. You have verse 11 in front of you there. On the way to Jerusalem... So Jesus begins a trip in Luke 9 toward Jerusalem. He'll get there in chapter 19. We're in the middle of this trip, and it marks this again and again. Jesus is headed there. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he he said to them, Go and show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. We see there in verse 11, Jesus is taking his disciples on the way to Jerusalem. And if you're in the Old Testament... Especially if you're in the Psalms, going to Jerusalem was a, like a pilgrimage of joy. They went up to Jerusalem to celebrate. They went up to Jerusalem to worship. They went up to Jerusalem to thank God. They went up to Jerusalem to sacrifice. How different it is, how different it is when Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Because there is this ominous note sounded again and again. As Jesus heads to Jerusalem, he is headed toward a confrontation. He's headed toward a confrontation with the religious leaders who politically don't want anything upset. They want to stay in charge. He's on a collision course with those that don't want him around. He knows, he knows, Jesus knows he is headed up to Jerusalem, to a cross, he will be the sacrifice. He's not going up there to just sacrifice an animal. He will be the sacrifice. When Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he knows full well what he's going for. And he brings his disciples with him. How different, but still he moves forward. And as we look at the story today, I would imagine this isn't a a totally unfamiliar story, but I really want to characterize this story by three particular words and then ask some questions. So one of those words is miracle, another is response and faith. Let's start off with that word miracle because there is a miracle there. And the question we're going to ask is what is this miracle uh, of 
cleansing or healing these lepers, what does that have to do? And what does that have to say about our need? Here are a couple thousand years later. What does this have to do with our need? gives us a marker. So Jesus is traveling between Samaria and Galilee. He's kind of in no man's land. He's likely traveling with the crowd. Certainly he's traveling with his disciples. He goes to enter a town and in the town, right outside the town, there are these lepers. And I am guessing, I'm guessing that we may have a few dermatologists here, but I'm guessing leprosy isn't everybody's strong suit. So if you do just allow me, because I think it's important that we have Let's say leprosy 101, all right? So physically, it's a skin disease. And so this is, one of those, this is one of those deals where there's lots of things you can cover and hide, but this is not one you're going to be able to cover and hide. You can't get out of your own skin, and externally, it's gonna, there's going to be tells, there's going to be markers. So, so we recognize physically what this means, but ritually, it also means something else, especially in that culture, a culture that's subject to purity customs and rituals. So I hear leprosy and, you know, people keeping their distance and immediately my mind thinks of, you know, well, maybe people are contagious and they want to keep their distance. There's something more going on in the Bible, especially in the Old and New Testaments where we read about these kinds of things. There's more going on and it has to do with rituals and purity customs. And for many that live in the West, this is a little bit different, but for cultures around the world, I can think of, of what I've read about the Middle East and what I've read even, even about India and other places in Asia where laws uh, and, and just customs of cleanliness and uncleanliness. I mean, there's a fine line. You, you, you recognize kosher food and there, there's lines like we, we don't cross this and this is clean and this is not clean. And if that seems like very, very distant to you to mark off things that clearly, I would say every culture has marked off some things and preserved some things that we say, this is, this is sacred. We don't mess around here. Like, we honor this place. This place, so you, uh, a person or a place or an object or an idea, we say, like, you ought to have reverence. This is hallowed. This is sacred space. Don't desecrate it. Don't dishonor. You show respect here. In Israel, much of the dividing line with clean and unclean, it's not 100% clear what all those dividing lines were, but most of the time, seems to have to deal with issues of life and death. There's a difference between the God of life and the death that has come into this world. And often the ritual and purity laws had to, had to do with that dividing line. What brings life and, and what is a, a sign of death? And certainly leprosy was a sign of something dying. So lepers in Leviticus 13 and lepers in Numbers 5 were marked off as unclean. They don't want uncleanness to spread. So what did that mean socially? You know, physically and ritually, but socially, that meant these lepers were isolated. Then people kept their distance, much like here, right? They, they stood at a distance, didn't they? We're told in other places they, they yell out they're unclean. They have to let everybody know. They signal. The social cue is like, don't let anybody get close. They're quarantined. And if we project like what that means for Leper number one, or leper number two, or leper number eight, or leper number ten. What's the future look like for them? It seems near hopeless. It's like, in, in many ways, as I, as I understand Jewish customs, in a lot of ways, they were treated like they were dead. I wonder what the day was like. I mean, some of these stories, we've got to dig deep and live in them. I mean, I wonder what it was like when one of those lepers, 
you know, pick whichever one you want, got the diagnosis the first time, got the news the first time, got the word from the priest the first time. Were they 15? 25? Were they 40? Where now you're never, you're never going to live with your family again. You're going to have to isolate and separate yourself. And there's no top flight medical staff and some hospital ward we can get them to where the best minds and this is what their society did. This is, I mean, all, all societies have a way of marking off those that, yeah, we're just not even going to think about them anymore. Maybe you have an uncle or a relative where you, you don't even know where they are. Probably, they may be dead. They may not. You, you don't really know. You don't really think about it a lot. It's one of those situations that society writes off. I mean, this is the need that Jesus walks into. All throughout the Bible, and this is so important, if you're going to understand any of the Gospels, I think you have to understand this point, is that Jesus uses physical realities to teach us about spiritual realities. Jesus uses, this happens again and again, he uses physical realities, and they're no less real, but he uses those to teach us about what's going on spiritually, and this is so critical to this story. So Jesus has compassion on them physically. And, and when Jesus sees and has compassion, it's a lot more than the doting grandpa that, you know, like, well, bless their heart. I'd love to do something to help you out, but I just don't know what to do. I can't do much. That's not Jesus. When Jesus sees something it, and it attaches to his compassion, he's there to help. I, I love what these, these lepers say. It's like, master, Jesus, have mercy on us. I think in some ways, I don't know if this is a big cry of faith. I wonder if it's like the prayers you might have prayed even at some point in time where you say, God, if you're out there, Jesus, if you can help anyway, you know, I think this is one of those prayers. And Jesus hears that kind of prayer and moves toward them. He sees them and he has compassion. It it makes, I think all of us that have read the Bible to any degree, we, we kind of smile when we hear people like appealing to Jesus, having compassion, because this is what we know about Jesus. Like, Friends, you have asked the right question if you've asked Jesus to have mercy on you. Because what we know about Jesus is that he is God in flesh. And what we know about God is that he's full of mercy and full of grace. So when this God who is full of mercy and full of grace comes to this earth in the flesh, he is going to be full of mercy and full of grace. So lepers, you have asked the right question to the right person. Have mercy on us. It's good news. It's a great day for them. Jesus heals them. I'm going to just take a moment and it's never happened in their lives, but someone walks by and heals them. He does so without like a a magic potion. Recite these words after me three times. He doesn't even, he doesn't pray. He doesn't even touch them. Go show yourself to the priest and the priest notarizes them. They can enter back into society. I mean, this is Jesus operating in authority. This is Jesus coming, just like Luke 4 said, he would come to free the oppressed and free the ones who were in bondage. Well, again, that's physical realities, but let's transfer those into spiritual realities where this is exactly what Jesus came to do. He came to set people free. In Luke 7, you might remember the story where John the Baptist is in prison and he hears about his cousin Jesus and he takes a couple of his followers and says, you, you, you go find out, is Jesus the real deal? Like, is he the Messiah? Is he the one we've been waiting for? Or should we just keep waiting? Do you remember Jesus' response to them in Luke 7? His response to John's disciples, well, you go back and tell John, 
that lepers are being healed. And this would have been a clue to John. The Son of God has arrived. Messiah has come. Don't lose heart. Don't lose faith. A piece of evidence is the healing of these ten lepers. The physical realities remind us of spiritual realities. And this is what I think is going on. As Jesus heals the lepers, he's reminding us of something else. I mean, we've got ten lepers who have a skin disease, but we have all of humanity with something else, and that's a disease of the heart. Our spiritual heart, it, we're, we're, we're not okay. Ezekiel would say we have a heart of stone. Jeremiah 17 would say we have this heart that's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. This is a spiritual condition. And, and if they were subject to, to purity laws and ritual customs, how much more inside when we are impure before a holy God and we can't go into his presence with our impurity? And if we want to talk about a leper living in isolation, what is sin but isolating us from a relationship with God, a relationship with each other, a relationship even internally where in, in our own heart we know we're okay? Our conscience is always going off saying, we're, you're not all right. That's not okay. You can't do that. If we want to talk about hopelessness of the lepers, well, Scripture says in Ephesians 2, you are without hope. Romans describes us as those who stand under the sentence of death. Because death has entered into the world. We are dead in trespasses and sins. So, I think the story is at least asking us to consider... Do you identify? Do you feel this? Do you see yourself there, spiritually speaking? Do you see yourself as guilty? This is scriptural terms, not mine. Do you see yourself as lost, apart from Christ? Do you see yourself as diseased? Do you see yourself in, like, real danger if there's not a rescue? Maybe you have felt that. Maybe you feel that now. Maybe that's why you're here. Because something internally just says, like, I'm not okay. But I think far too often we don't, we don't really realize that is our condition. If you had that conversation where you're talking to someone and they point out that this other person, yeah, that other, that person is really, really controlling. And what's odd about that conversation is you think they're controlling. It's like, how do you, how can you see so clearly that they're controlling or they're greedy or they're materialistic? Or they're bitter, but you don't see in your own heart. And and it should tell us something that often we don't see ourselves really well. The mirror goes up and it's distorted and we we don't really see ourselves so clearly. There's times where you want to say, you're calling them controlling? Can I just recite the past week what you've tried to manipulate and, and make me do? But then there's these moments where our tendency to give ourselves like the spiritual touch up so that we look a little bit better. Like all that falls away and we identify with the leper. Say, this is who we are. Do we really see our need? I will say it takes God opening your eyes to do that. We're just not going to get there. It takes God opening our eyes to do this. So we have a miracle accomplished for several lepers in need. But our next word is like response. How did these lepers, 10 of them, respond? And really, what is the real difference? Because we have two kinds of responses. Nine respond one way and one responds a different way. And what is the difference between the one that responded, the Samaritan, and the other nine? It's easy to speculate. Okay, what's the difference? It's easy 
Now, I, I read lots of material that speculated on you know, some of the differences here. An easy answer, probably the low, low-hanging fruit would be, well, it's just gratitude. Like the nine, they weren't grateful. And you know what? We need more gratitude in these days. People aren't grateful enough. So we ought to walk out of here and, and two hours later when you're thinking about this, you ought to be motivated to, to write that thank you note that you've, you've been putting off. I think it's very easy for us to go there and there's worse things than us being grateful. I, I think if you walk out of here saying, I just need to be a little bit more grateful, I think you've missed the biggest point and the biggest difference. So let's just ask the Bible. It's a great place to start. What, what does the text say that's different about what one did and the other nine? You see what they all do. What they all do is they all ask for help. They're all crying out, Lord, help me. Have mercy. And they all actually, did you notice, they all respond with obedience to what Jesus told them to do. All ten. They all set out for the priest. I would say they all enjoyed the healing that would come from being cleansed and able to enter back into community. But what did the one do? If you look in verse 15 and 16, you see it. It says when one of them, first thing he did like differently is at least scripture draws our attention to it. He saw, he became, he, he was aware of what was going on, what was happening. Can't imagine what that moment would, would have been like. And then it says he turned back. He turned to go back to Jesus. There's a change of direction physically, literally, there's a change of direction. Wherever he was going, he changes that direction. And then it says in the scripture there, he praises God with a loud voice So there's some level of humility giving praise to God and he falls on his face before Jesus and he thanks Jesus. That's what he did that was different. He turns back, gives praise to God, falls on his face before Jesus and thanks Jesus. There's a deep gratitude and he's not just grateful for the what, he's grateful to the who. See, I think the what is... I think they were all grateful for the what, but this, this one presses on more and like, who did this? And then when you begin to meditate on who has been kind to you, who's been gracious to you, it opens other doors like, well, how, how did they ever do this? Why? What would motivate them to be so kind to me? What would motivate them to be so grateful? And for the man, they returned. The complete focus is on Jesus. And by the way, that is exactly what Luke's been doing with this whole story. He's been telling us, not here are some morals that you could live your life by. He's been telling us, focus on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Give glory to Jesus. That's even what the shepherds were doing. They were giving praise to God, focusing on Jesus. Jesus is the centerpiece of the work that God was doing The God of life and death is now at work in and through Jesus. And if we walk away thinking, I should give my full attention to what Jesus is doing in the world, I think we're much more on target. This is the goal of life, an eternity filled with being wrapped around who Jesus is. And I think of the contrast with that man's response that is totally focused on Jesus and the other nine, and the other nine walk away really without a clue. I think they walk away without a clue as to who they've just encountered. They receive common grace. See, I don't think this is about them not necessarily being that grateful. I would imagine they're grateful. Things got chaotic. Maybe they didn't get to get back. They had a lot of years to catch up on. They had other things they had to kind of get get in motion. 
I'm sure if you have, we, we go back to kindergarten and we were say nine lepers, what do you say to Jesus for what he did? I think they would all say, thank you, Jesus. But that seems quite inadequate in this moment, doesn't it? That if pressed, they would go ahead and say what they needed to say. I'm sure they would say it. But Jesus calls attention to this one who responded differently. I wonder if the difference is whether we look to Jesus as like the lead actor or just a supporting actor in the story of our lives. I certainly couldn't make the case from Scripture, but I wonder if those nine move on with their life and Jesus will always be an important part of their story. But they're going to write the rest of their own story. Very important part. A good supporting actor in the story that they were living. But then there's one that comes back and Jesus isn't a supporting actor. He's the lead role. It's all the difference in the world. The supporting actor shows up at like important moments in the story, but the lead is the point of it all. The supporting one, man, that character, that actor, that actress makes the story so much better, but but the lead, there is no story apart from that actor. The lead is the whole thing. And I, I have to ask, what about you? I mean, what about me? Who is the lead actor? Have we, have we taken Jesus and said, listen, you're really, you're really important, but you're important in a supporting role. I wouldn't be where I, I am if you weren't kind of right there for me when I needed you. Or is Jesus driving? So, So frankly, I mean, is he absolutely central? So you have your career and you have your moments where you're trying to give back and you've got your friendships that you're trying to establish and where where exactly is Jesus in all that? Or or you've got school or you've got overtime or you've got ballet or you've got sports and all that is like busy, busy, busy and exactly where, where is Jesus in all of that? Or you've got retirement and you've got grandkids and you've got downsizing and where does he fit in that supporting role? Or you have graduation and you've got travel and you've got hobbies and you've got a relationship and thank God you don't have an addiction and you've got some financial health and some security there, but where exactly in your day, where does he show up? Is he like at your beck and call or is he... Is he your central reason for living? So, so when Paul would say things like Philippians 3.10, like, for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, like this is, there's nothing compares to that. Or in Colossians 3, where he talks about Christ being our lives and he is all and in all. Or in Colossians 1, where he says, in all things, Jesus should have first place, should have supremacy. Does that seem like a foreign concept? I think this pushes us to ask the question, I mean, could we be more like the nine walking around without a clue? I mean, yeah, we, we ask God for things just like they ask Jesus for things. But when it gets really down to it, is his place in our life minimized or magnified? God's common grace, make no mistake, God's common grace extends to all people. We're breathing and it's his air that we're breathing. We're walking in his world. And that's by his grace. But some turn back. 
and respond to Jesus. Romans 1 tells this damning story. I think it paints a, a, a real damning picture of us. It says, although like the world knew, knew God, they didn't honor him as God and they didn't give him thanks. God's out there. I got my own thing going. Or, or even 2 Timothy 3, 2, it gives us kind of the characteristics of the last days, evil days, times of difficulty, where people are lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, and, and this word shows up, ungrateful. This is just the epitome of those that say, I kind of am the lead role in my story. Not if I need you to be a supporting role. Jesus, I'll, I'll call you in. Give glory to God. Fall at the feet of Jesus. Thank him. This is a response. We've seen a miracle and we've seen two very different responses. But the last word that I, I, I see in 17 to 19 is the word faith. Faith. I mean, how does Jesus view the response of this one that has returned, this one leper who has returned? And, and we know exactly what Jesus does. He, he highlights it in verse 17. He's, this is the response. Like, well, well, 10 were cleansed. Where are nine? Because if 10 are cleansed, then 10 should be back. This is the response. This is the re- response of faith. This is the essence of saving faith. As a matter of fact, when you come to the end of verse 19, Jesus says to this Samaritan, he says, rise and go your way, your faith. And then we have this word in, in the translation I read, your faith has made you well. Another perfectly fine translation for that is your faith has actually saved you. It's the same word over and over again that comes up of salvation in the New Testament. It's different than being cleansed and it's different from being healed. The, the nine are cleansed and healed, but one is saved. One has saving faith. Your faith has saved you. Faith in Jesus is the means by which your relationship with God is restored. The disciples earlier in this chapter, in chapter 17, were saying, Lord, increase our faith. I wonder if Jesus, I mean, it's not in there, but you can wonder if Jesus, you want to see faith increased? Notice this leper. That's faith. That is what faith is all about. And I think it's almost like a prototype, a preview, because this is before the cross. It's before the empty tomb. It's before the ascension of Jesus. But there's some parts of this that just give us a preview of what saving faith is going to look like, rescuing faith is going to look like. You see, I mean, the big story of the Bible is that God brings life to this world and the world is filled with death. And he sends his son into the world in love and and his son tastes death. He lives a perfect life and he dies a death in sacrifice. He rises in victory, conquering death. And he does so to restore all things, to restore people back to God. And because Jesus has done that, there is only one response. Believe. Turn. Put your faith in him. Trust in him. Follow him. Give glory to him. Give praise to him. Live your whole life giving praise to him. That is the response. That's what's demanded of us when we know what Jesus has done for us. And scripture reminds us that salvation is given to those who believe. Salvation is granted for all who believe. The object of our faith saves us. Your faith has made you well. 
That's said of us. Spiritually, again, the physical realities are important. The spiritual realities are even more significant. And one more little surprise tucked away in the story. It's found in the identity of the one that returned. It's no accident that this is what's highlighted. The one who returned is the Samaritan. And anybody reading this, certainly with a Jewish background, would have gone, a Samaritan? Like the the deck was double stacked against them, ever having any hope of getting anything from God. I mean, so the leper is, yeah, like, yeah, they're going to stay and clean the rest of their life. And a Samaritan, well, their religion's so convoluted and messed up, they'll, they'll never really be like front row recipients of Jesus' attention. But notice what Jesus does. He just wrecks all the paradigms. And another note of grace is sounded here. I think, I think that's hugely important, especially for those that say, you know, Curtis, I, I, see, I see what you mean about physical and spiritual, and I see you're talking about, you know, being saved, being rescued, but surely, Curtis, if you knew what I'd done, you would know I'm disqualified from that. If you knew my background, if you knew how rough my past was, if you knew the sexual sin, if you knew the people that I'd hurt, the problems that I've caused, I feel like embedded into this story is just one more reminder that you can, you can raise those objections like, ah, probably Jesus wouldn't come for me. But here's one more time where that objection would be countered with, no, 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 no. He goes to Samaritans. He goes to lepers. Don't put up this false obstacle of like, I, I, I'd never be received by him. Don't do that. Don't do that. Where's Jesus taking us? So we're, we're following him. We're going to follow him to Jerusalem. And along the way, we might have encounters like this. And it becomes very, very critical how you respond at those encounters. Are you turning to him? Are are you reminding yourself, maybe even again, because we need reminders, we forget, that he ought to be the central thing. Like, what have I been thinking? Well, just like the Samaritan, turn back. Turn back. Fall at his face again. But it may be you'd say, I I never knew there was hope. I never knew like life could have a, a, a new start, a fresh start. I never knew I could be born again. I never knew I could be changed. Today is the day not where you throw up all sorts of objections. Today is the day where you go to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, forgive me. Trust in him. Pray to him. Turn to him. Talk to someone about it. And just let that linger. Go public with it. I, 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 I am one of those that Jesus saw and had compassion on. And I've turned from everything else and I'm following him. You say, I, Curtis, I don't know how to put all the pieces together in my life if I were to make that kind of decision. Well, I'm sure there's a friend that may have invited you that would love to talk with you, or a pastor here would love to talk with you. Say, what's, what's the next step here? Can I ask you to bow your head? Can I ask you to just consider this encounter with Jesus? Where is he taking you? Where has he taken you this morning? And what will your response be? Let's not be like the nine that 
skipped away, not really thinking about him ever again. In a moment, we'll sing, and we'll sing that the central part of our life is the cause of Christ. It's all wrapped up in him. Lord, we confess where we relegate you to the support role because we like what we're doing. We like to be in control. We like to call our own shots. We like to get our own way. Lord, we come back to you just like the Samaritan did, falling on her face, saying, Lord, have mercy. We thank you again for what you've done for us on the cross. Focus our attention, not just in this moment, but in the moments to come, in the week to come, we would be living for your glory, not for our own, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.